Well, good morning, and, uh, and welcome to St. Rose Community Church. Uh, at this time, as we started last week, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our three- and four-year-olds who are in the service with us. Uh, so if there's any three- and four-year-olds, they, they might have already been dismissed. But um, any three- or four-year-olds, uh, go ahead and... Is there anybody leading them out there? I don't see anyone. They just went. Okay, we're good. I was like, dismiss them to nowhere. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, so welcome. Uh, I am glad uh, to be here this morning uh, with, with, with the church family. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And if you do not have your Bible with you, uh, no shame in that. Uh, you can just slip up your hand and one of our church members will grab and get one to you. So if you don't have your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our members will get one to you. So Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. So over the past two weeks, we have been looking at the dispute between Jesus and the religious, re, religious elite over matters of ritual purity and over matters of hand-washing and over the matters of what makes you unclean versus what makes you clean. And Jesus has gone head-to-toe with the Pharisees about these things. And he's given a discourse. Last week we saw Brandon preach on the, the discourse he gives about what truly defiles a person is not what someone puts in their mouth, But what defiles a person is what comes out of him, meaning that all of us are defiled. Over the last two weeks, we've seen both the Pharisees and the scribes and then Jesus' own disciples fail at seeing what Jesus is talking about. They have failed to have faith in what Jesus wants them to see. And immediately after this dispute over what is clean versus unclean, we've got verses 24 through 30. So coming off of those verses... We come to our passage this morning, and I'm going to read it, and then, uh, and then we'll pray for God's help and understanding. So verse 24 of, verse seven, of chapter 7. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, And came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, for the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in a bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that as we've already seen and as we've already sung about, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that we, in the middle of this Christmas season, would know the reason for why we celebrate, that you came, 
You did not send an angel or someone else to do your bidding, but you came yourself and put on human flesh to, to, to just give out your mercy freely and abundantly. So we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would help us to see and savor your truths. We pray this morning that you would help us to understand by your spirit. We know we can't do it ourselves. Our eyes are blind. Our ears are stuffed up. So we need your help to see. It's only by a miracle. So would you help us this morning? Uh, Lord, I pray for me that you would help me not to preach my own words, but to preach what you would want me to say. Put a guard over my mouth that I would only preach your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be convicted and compelled by your truth this morning. And it's in your sons that I pray. Amen. So after these debates over cleanliness and uncleanliness, Jesus travels to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So what do we know about this place? Well, the region of Tyre and Sidon was notoriously unclean. In the first century, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And he, uh, and he concluded that the region of Tyre was the most bitter enemies that the Jewish people had. One commentator of this text noted that Tyre represented the most extreme expressions of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. This was a hotbed for sin. This was a hotbed for paganism and idolatry. We should be back on. Okay, awesome. Those are just some faulty batteries. Uh, so, in fact, none of Jesus' followers uh, would have traveled to this place. This was a notoriously unclean place. And in fact, this is the only time that Jesus travels outside of the nation of Israel. All his other ministry in the book of Mark is within inside the, 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 with inside the region of Israel. And this is the sole time that he goes outside the walls or outside the boundaries. So our question that we're left with is why? Like, why does Jesus travel this one time to this unclean place outside of Israel? And our text tells us, look at verse 24. It says, And Jesus um, from there arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and what? He entered a house, and he did not yet want anyone to know. So Jesus, as we've seen already, is attempting to find some rest. He's trying to find some rest because of the crowds that have been following him. Can you imagine the disputes he's just been in, the disputes with the religious elite? That had to be exhausting. You're just like arguing, like, can you not see? Can you not see? Can you not see? So here we have Jesus getting, the, getting to, like, on purpose, going to one of the places where he's like, okay, they're not going to find me here. Like, they're not traveling outside of Israel. I, I should be good to get some rest here. What a better place to go than the Jewish elite is not even going to, they're not, they're going to refuse to even follow me to this place. But as we've seen before, 
Jesus' fame has gone before him, even to this unclean region. Verse 24 says that he does not anyone to know, but what? Yet he could not be hidden. And who finds him? Look with me at verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now this woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus, trying to get some solace, some R&R, is there and in bursts this woman with an, whose daughter had an unclean spirit. She comes in with a daughter who's demon-possessed, and she interrupts his silence. And, and what does our text tell us about this woman? Well, verse 26, verse 26 almost reads like a, like a crescendo of really bad things. It says that she's a Gentile. She is a Syrophoenician by birth. And she has a, I mean, she's got a demon-possessed daughter. Out of all the people who have approached Jesus, out of all the people who could approach Jesus, commentators note that this individual had the most going against her. Out of anybody who could approach her, she had the most against her. She was a woman from a broken family. She had a demon-possessed daughter. She was a woman from a region that was the most pagan, that was the most idolatrous. Syrophoenicia, which is what we read, where you looked at it, you're probably like, what's that? Syrophoenicia was a specific region in Tyre that was Hellenized. It was a region of Greek people inside of this, um, inside of this region. So basically, it was just saying she's from this specific region in Tyre. And what we learn is she's not qualified to be there. She's not qualified to be in front of the Messiah. She had no prior claim on Jesus' mercy. She was not from the Jewish line. She was not from the, from the line of the promises of Abraham and the family of Isaac. She didn't even really know who Jesus was. She had only known Jesus by reputation. We actually see this earlier. Uh, it'll be on the screen. Mark 3, see if you recognize any of these places, says this. Earlier on in Mark, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and from Indumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around, where? Tyre and Sidon. So the places we're reading about. When the great crowd from this place heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and they told his disciples to, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many. So all that had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So I read that to, read, to tell us, like, Jesus' uh, fame had gone before him. These people who had been healed in Tyre and Sidon, or from Tyre and Sidon, came back. They said, man, look what happened to me. I'm healed. So here's a woman who knows about Jesus' reputation. And our text tells us that she comes and falls at his feet and begs Jesus for mercy. The picture we get is that this woman is at the end of her rope. She doesn't know where else to go. She's seemingly without hope. But then here comes this Jesus guy. She's like, what is this guy doing in my town? Like, here's the Jesus Messiah. He's healed all those other people that I knew about, but now he's, I heard a rumor that he's in this house. I got to go find him because I got no hope left. Like, I got to find something to, that, that's going to help me and, and heal my daughter. I've got to find some mercy. So she 
finds him and falls at his feet and begs, would you please heal my daughter? And I can't help but think of the difference in how she approaches Jesus comparatively to how the Pharisees and scribes approached Jesus earlier. After a long discourse, Jesus approaches them. After a long dispute about unclean and clean rituals and hand-washing, the only thing that the Pharisees have is unrepentant, hard, and hostile hearts. But now, here's a notably and notoriously unclean woman from an unclean region doing what? Broken. <laughs> Being broken and falling at his feet, begging for mercy. But Jesus' response is pretty interesting. Look with me at verse 27 to look at Jesus' response. So after she begs him for mercy, verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. If you are taken back by this response, you're not the only one. In fact, I, I wish I had my notebook because when I was doing, like, and Brandon asked me to preach on, like, Tuesday, and whenever I was reading this, I circled this verse and wrote up beside this, what? And uh, I was like, what is he talking about? Like, I don't, I don't know. And if I was on, on a, we were on our pastor's retreat, and, uh, and, and Taylor was there with Stephen and Stephen Picard and Brandon, and they can all tell you that I was talking to them, and my, and I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, what is, what is happening? Because when I... When I, when, I think, when I thought about what a dog is in the past, uh, and even what we see in Scripture, uh, when someone is referred to as a dog, um, it's always negative. Like, it's always degrading, almost. So when I read this, my initial thought is like, is Jesus degrading this woman? Like, she's coming and begging for help. Like, is he being mean to her? Because, I mean, we, we see in Scripture that, that dogs are, I mean, just, I mean, we see them described and displayed as, like, carnal and, like, like being out on the street and, like, eating corpses. That's, that's what we get of dogs. Look at, I mean, on the screen, just one example from Exodus twenty two thirty one. 31. It says this, The Lord says, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any, eat any flesh that is torn by the beasts of the fields, but, but just throw it to the dogs. Let them have it. Referring to someone as a dog was a deep sign of disrespect and an insult in the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, Paul in Philippians 3.2 refers to his opponents as dogs. And in the, the tradition of the rabbis, um, I, I, I read this in the commentary, the term dog referred to a term, it was a term of reproach that referred to the most despicable, the most insolent, and the most miserable creatures on earth. Jesus himself, on the Sermon on the Mount, said this, do not, give, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under their foot and turn to attack you. Don't give to dogs what is holy, Jesus says. So I ask you, and we're going to look at, is this what Jesus is talking, is this, is this what's going on in this passage? Is that what Jesus means by the term dog here? Because if we read this and think that Jesus, if Jesus, and this is an impossible if, but if we read this and think if Jesus could have sinned and how he treated this woman, then we're in trouble <laughs> because our salvation is at stake. If Jesus 
sinned. He knew no sin, so if, and it's a possible if, but if he sinned, his sacrifice on the cross for us will be null and void. So I just say that to say, like, how we interpret this text is super important. So, I, so, so what's going on in this text? Let's read it again. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So, in the original language, I'm not going to, I'm going to nerd out for a second, but it needs, it needs to happen. It's going to be helpful. So, in the original Greek language, the word that is used for dog here is not the normal word. It's not the word for a wild, unkempt, savage of a dog, of a beast. The word for the dog here is, uh, is, is, has a nuance to it, has a different ending to it, and it's a, it's a diminutive, right? Claire, is that the right way to say it? Diminutive. I studied this in seminary, but that was like three years ago, so that was a long time ago. So it's a diminutive, and if you know what that means, that means that it makes it like lessens it or makes it smaller. So really, it's nuanced or better rendered as Jesus saying little dogs or pet dogs or uh, house dogs, a pet, a pet dog. And this is the only time, this and in the parallel account of Matthew, where we see this word for dog. All the other times, it's like wild, ravaged dogs. But here, it's nuanced in such a way that it means little pet dogs. So in this part of the world, I had to do a little history digging here, but in this part of the world, at this time, just like ours, there were small dogs that would be brought into the home as pets, just like our world today. These dogs were not savages. These dogs were not unkempt. These dogs did not feast on the corpses outside, but they were brought into the home, and they were to be a part of the family in some sense as, as like the family pet. And here, Jesus is telling a parable. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is calling her mind to like a specific domestic scene. They're in a house, so it makes sense. They're sitting around a table in a house. Can you picture it with me? And he calls her mind to this domestic scene, and I can almost see it now. There's a, just throw your mind back to Jesus' time. There's a family sitting around the table with a, with a husband and a wife and a bunch of little kids, or a couple little kids, around the dinner table eating, and then there's the pet dog underneath the table. And if you have dogs, you probably don't have to imagine this scene. I know at my grandparents' house, uh, Bethany's grandparents' house, whenever we eat dinner, like, I can always feel the dog underneath me. And I'm not, like, a huge dog person, so I'm just like, can you get this dog out of here? We're trying to eat. So, like, I, it's just like you can just feel it constantly underneath the table. Um, So the principle at this time in Jewish households was this. You could feed animals from the table and give them the scraps, but only after the rest of the family had eaten. I mean, we see that. Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and then throw it to the dog. So he's, saying the do he's not saying the dogs don't eat, but he's saying the children eat first and then the dogs eat. And that's a pretty good principle. Imagine a family with me, right? The family, the, the wife, the husband, the children, the dog. It would not be normal to pull up a chair and say, take a seat, dog. You're up here at the table. And some of you might not do that. I'm not casting any judgment. But, uh, but Jesus is, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
But for, Jesus, for a dog just to come up and sit at the table and use a fork and knife, that's not, that doesn't happen. The dog has nutritious dog food to eat. And, and, uh, and also, I mean, when you think about most families, most families, one part, one, either the husband or the wife, usually likes the pet a lot more than the other one. I know in my family, my, uh, my, dog, my dad just had a special place with our dog Zoe, and my mom would just be like, eh, he's fine, but, but my, it, Zoe was my dad's dog. And, uh, and I can just imagine it now, in this first century family, they're eating around the table, but then the dog, and they're not feeding the dog food, but then the dog starts to look at the dad with longing eyes, with literal puppy dog eyes. And w- the dad says, what, what's the problem with just giving a little bit of food to the dog? Like, I'm not going to sit up on the table, but I can just give him a little bit of my pork chop. And the wife is like, oh, whatever. Yeah, that, that's fine, but, but can you just wait until everyone else has eaten? Like, just wait until we're done eating, and then you can have your fun with the dog. You can give the dog the food. So the dog, lear- so the dog learns to do what? He, he learns not to jump up on the table and to, to eat the scraps, but he learns to wait for the leftovers. He knows his time is coming. The dog also learns that if, if food just so happens to fall from the table, that it's fair game. I know Bethany is not a fan of me taking food off the floor and putting it back on the table. It'll be better for the dog just to come clean it up. It's one of the perks. It's a nature's Roomba, if you will. That's not in my notes. So I'm going to move past that. Um, Uh, so if the food falls on the floor, it's okay for the dog to eat. And the same principle was applied in this day. Obviously, if it falls, the dog can eat it. So in responding to this woman's desperate request, Jesus draws on this familiar scene of a household. He tells a parable. That's what this is. And in this parable, Jesus says, hey, the children eat first. Well, our question is, who are the children? Like, who is Jesus talking about? Well, here he's referring to the children of Israel. He's saying the children eat first. Hey, I came for the people of the old covenant first, is what Jesus is saying. He says, I mean, after all, the Jewish people were the people of the promise. Genesis 12, 1 and 2 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So Jesus is saying, I came for these children. The children uh, who, who, who were led from the exile into the wilderness, into the promised land, and are now waiting for their Messiah. He came for his children. This, this shows us that Jesus' ministry had a specific purpose to it. He came to feed his children first. And not to give the family dog what was meant for those children. There's a priority in Jesus' mission. Isaiah 49, 6 says this, prophesying of Jesus. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And then I'll make you a light for the nations. My salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Paul says in in, the... of the gospel in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the power of the God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But remember, 
this woman is what? An unclean Gentile. She's not the priority. Jesus is saying, I came for my children. You're not, it's not your turn yet. And how does this woman respond? Is she taken back? Does the woman say, you know, I don't like that response very much. So I'm gone. I'm, I'm offended by what you said. So I'm out of here. Because Jesus almost, it seems like he almost refuses to help from the onset. Is she so offended that she, that she leaves? Look at verse 28 with me. But she answered him, yes, Lord. She says, yes, Lord. She does not push back against what Jesus had said, albeit hard. She does not get offended. She does not reject. She doesn't even hesitate. She says, yes, Lord. And by a, by a seeming miracle, this woman understands what Jesus is talking about. She humbly accepts the parable. This woman is tracking her... She's tracking with what Jesus is saying by, uh, by understanding her place in the parable and even responding to it with a quick whip. I mean, this is an impressive response. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In fact, by answering this way, we see that this is truly, this is the first person in the gospel of Mark to actually understand a parable that Jesus has said. So far, what have we seen? How many times have we seen the disciples not understand what Jesus is talking about? How many times have we seen the ones whom Jesus came for, the children, give Jesus pushback and hostility and hardness of hearts? Right before this passage, remember we were talking about cleanliness and uncleanliness and, and hand washing, and after this discourse, Jesus comes back with the disciples, and we read this in Mark chapter 7, verse 17 through 18. And he entered into the house and left the people. And his disciples asked him the par- about the parable. And he said to him, I can almost imagine, the dis- like, like, are you kidding me? Then are you also without understanding? Like, seriously, guys, I spend the most time with you. Like, I teach you. I, I, you travel with me, and you don't even understand? Do you not see? And whatever goes into a person cannot defile him. The disciples can't see, they can't understand, but yet this unclean woman from Tyre, she has understood her place. She saw her need and her reality. And her response is truly amazing. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman says this. Yes, Lord. I understand. Like, I have no prior claim to your mercy. I'm not a child of the promise. I'm not from the line of Jacob and Judah and and Israel. I understand. I can't jump on the table and eat first and feast upon the food that you set for your children. But she says, I don't want that. She says, Lord, I'm satisfied with the crumbs. All I'm asking, she says, is that you would just let one crumb from your table fall to me, an unassuming, unclean Gentile. Would you just let one morsel from your table fall to me? It's all I need. She says, Jesus, would you please heal my daughter? 
I know that she's not a part of your family. I get it. It's not our time yet. I know she's not numbered among the children. I know that in this parable, we are dogs who wait for the crumbs. But she says, one crumb, one single crumb is all I need. And what great faith this woman displays. And you, once again, you can't help but contrast her response to the response of the Pharisees and the scribes from the earlier passage. The irony is incredible. The children were too picky. <laughs> the children didn't want what Jesus had to offer. They turned their nose up at Jesus' food. Jesus responds to their hostile hearts, right? In Mark 7, he says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. But this woman, her heart was close to the Messiah. This woman understood her place and says, Lord, would you just give me a crumb? I'm not asking for the whole meal. She understood this. One small crumb from Jesus is better than a full feast, anything this world has to offer us. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? And Jesus says what? Verse 29. And he says to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. There's a parallel account of this very story in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 15, 28, Jesus, it says this, after she responds in the same way in Matthew 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Jesus had not seen this type of faith yet in his ministry. Not with the rabbis, not with the Pharisees, not with the scribes, not even with his own disciples. This unclean, Gentile woman displayed great faith. And I am convinced, actually, we all are convinced, we read it in this passage, that this woman experienced the mercy and the power of God in healing her daughter. We read that in the passage. Jesus, man, Jesus didn't even have to go home with her. He didn't say, okay, take me to your house. Now, all he says is, he doesn't even say, now your daughter is healed. No, it says, your daughter's already been healed by your faith, by my power through your faith. Jesus says to the woman, it's okay. You can go home now. Your daughter has been restored. I've showed you mercy. To the unclean woman, Jesus has shown mercy. To the woman from a pagan land filled with idolatry, she was permitted to eat with Jesus. And she went, I mean, I can see it now. She went away singing the praises of the Messiah who healed her daughter, showed her mercy, and gave her the, all she needed was a crumb, and she got it even though it wasn't her time yet. So what do we learn from this encounter between Jesus and this woman? What are our takeaways from this passage? What do we learn? Well, let's look at four things quickly. Four things that we learn from this passage. Number one, first takeaway is this. Humble yourselves so that you can see yourselves rightly. Humble yourself to see yourself rightly. How did the woman come to Jesus? She didn't say, I deserve this. <laughs> I, know you, I know you've done this in the past, so do this for me. She's not assuming. She comes 
and falls at his feet and begs for mercy. Brothers and sisters, may we do the same thing. May we see ourselves as beggars in need of bread, in need of a crumb. May we see ourselves as sinners in need of saving. May we never see ourselves as graduating above doing this very thing. May we never see ourselves as saying, I've got the gospel, good, uh, and I'm doing very well, Lord, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trucking. May we never graduate above pleading for mercy, above getting on our knees and beating our breasts and saying, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. The woman, did not att- the woman did not take offense at what Jesus said. In fact, she understood her place and responded rightly. And friends, I've got news for you in this room. In terms of redemptive history, you and I are dogs. We're not the children. We're Gentiles. We are the dogs. And yes, Jesus' ministry had a, it had, a, it had a priority in this sense, the children of Israel. But the good news of the gospel, well, one of the good, there's many good news of the gospel. One of the good news of the gospel, one of the good news of the gospel is that we have, the dogs have been adopted in as a part of the family. We have been grafted in. Romans 15, 8 through 12 says this, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jewish people. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Verse 9 in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. We read, a, we read a prophecy of Isaiah about Jesus, Isaiah 49.6, earlier in the sermon. But I want us to read it again with fresh eyes. Isaiah 49.6, prophesying of Jesus, says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel, and then I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach not just to my children, but to the ends of the earth. Never presume upon the mercy of God, but humbly see yourself as the woman saw herself, desperately in need of Jesus. That's the first thing we see, and the first takeaway we have. Takeaway number two, humble yourself so that you can see Jesus rightly. Humble yourself so that you can see Jesus rightly. When faced with this hard parable, the woman responds with two amazing words. Yes, Lord. In this room, brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Messiah. And each day when I get up and when we pray, and when we pray the, the I mean, I model my prayer after the, Lord's Prayer, when we pray, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. Let not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. May we humbly submit ourselves to Jesus' glorious reign. Part of coming and falling at the feet is acknowledging that Jesus is a person or a God worth laying ourselves in front of and begging to. 
And, and after all, isn't this quite literally the first step in following Jesus? Luke 9.23 says this, And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So, brothers and sisters, and even those who are not Christians, especially to those who are not Christians in this room, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth denying yourself and taking up your cross. To the Christian in the room, Jesus is worth it. He's worth doing it every day. Humble yourself to see Jesus rightly. Takeaway number three, be satisfied with the crumbs. Be satisfied with the crumbs. Takeaway number three. This woman knew that a crumb from Jesus was better than any feast this world had to offer. This woman was satisfied with the crumb because she knew that that's all she needed. And friends, a crumb from Jesus is all we need. One crumb from Jesus' table is more than enough. One crumb from Jesus, a tiny morsel, can change your life. One tiny morsel, one tiny crumb of grace, of mercy, from God will save your soul. It's all you need. And all it takes, like, Jesus is so powerful. It doesn't even take him giving you a full meal. It's just a crumb that he has to give away. Just one tiny bit. And, and would any of you in this room, like, would any of you in this room trade your crumb of salvation for anything in this world? No. <laughs> and Jesus gave this freely away to the woman, and this morning Jesus gives it freely to you. And although, this is my favorite one, although we should be satisfied with the crumbs, God is not satisfied in just giving us crumbs. Takeaway number four is this. Know that God has invited us in to so much more. Know that God has invited us in to so much more. Although dogs, each one of us in this room and this woman, we've been invited to eat. To eat with the family of God. Friends, God is rich in mercy. God abounds in steadfast love. And you know what? If he gave us one bit, it would be enough. But you know what? He's not stingy in giving it away. He doesn't say, you just get a crumb. That's all you get. If you need more, you've got the crumb. I'm sorry. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus is rich in mercy, and he gives it away freely. Where grace abounds. No, wait, where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. Where our sins are many, his mercy is more. Ephesians 2, 4, and 6, 4 through 6 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. We have a seat at the table in Christ. But even more so, we as brothers and sisters in Christ look forward one day where our feasting will be final. We look forward one day to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will all be seated and we will be with God face to face. No more even needing crumbs because the full feast is right in front of us. 
at the same table with God himself. At the same table with children from the Old Covenant and then all of us who have been grafted in. At the same table with Jews and Greeks where there's no distinction. All have been justified by the grace of Christ. And in Revelation 19, 6-9, we get a picture of what this will be like. It reads this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, the supper, the feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. I got good news for you. If you are justified and in Christ, you're invited to that supper. Where our feasting will be final. Each one of us who have received just a taste, who have received a crumb, will never be hungry again when we are with Jesus face to face. So my, 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 I implore you, if you have never begged God for a crumb, would you do that this morning? Like, he is wanting to give his grace and his mercy away freely. And he, he will give it to you. So come and take and eat from his table. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this account of faith. Lord, we thank you and we praise your holy name for giving us, oh, for giving us crumbs of salvation. Lord, Lord, we know we don't deserve anything. We know we don't deserve to eat at your table. And yet, we know that one crumb is more than enough. So I pray that each one of us would would see ourselves rightly as beggars in need of mercy. I pray that each one of us would see Jesus rightly as the one who gives mercy. I pray that each one of us would be satisfied with a crumb. And and I pray that each one of us would look forward with expectant hope of the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. And, uh, And we pray that we would respond now and we would worship you for all that you've done. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.